everybody. Welcome back to the Thrive Theology podcast, where we enjoy discussing theology in order to equip you to live thoughtfully as a Christian, um, because theology isn't just about head knowledge, it's about the study of the heart of God. Today we are going to be talking about the five solas. So the five solas are something that you maybe have heard of, maybe not. Um, If you're reformed, you've probably definitely heard of them. And if you're not reformed, you maybe don't know what we're talking about. Um, So the five solas are something that come up a lot among believers who are reformed, like I said, in their theology, which when we say reformed, we're covering a lot of different denominations. Um, Reformed denominations typically just trace their heritage back to the Reformation of 1517. So over the course of this episode, we will be referring to the history of the church, specifically the Reformation, and the denominational differences in theological beliefs. We have done a few episodes that would probably be helpful for background uh, before you listen to this one, so you can check those out if you want. They are episode 32, What's the Deal with Denominations, and episode 33, The Roman Catholic Church's Theology. Those two would probably be the most helpful, and those episodes are more about defining the characteristics and histories of different denominations, and this episode is more focused on defining and explaining specific theological stances that came out of the Reformation. So, the five solas. Sola is the Latin word for solo, which means what it means in English, um, alone. Um, So there's five of them, which really it should be sole, but we're not going to quibble Latin grammar. Yeah, people just say solas. Like, they take sola and then add the English, like, S to make it plural. Yeah. But, like, if you were making it plural in Latin, it would be the five sole. S-O-L-A-E. So the five solas are five alone statements. So sola scriptura is scripture alone. Sola fide, by faith alone. Sola gratia, by grace alone. Solus Christus, by Christ alone. And the fifth one is soli deo gloria, to the glory of God alone or to the glory of the only God. There's differences in how that's translated into English. So these are the five sole or solas. Um, And we're going to give you a brief history of the Protestant Reformation because that's exactly where these came out of. On October 31st in 1517, Martin Luther, who was a German monk, posted his 95 theses, also known as the Disputation on the Power of Indulgences, in the church door in Wittenberg, Germany. Now, while it would be interesting to do a biography episode on Luther, which we should probably do that in the future, um, we don't have space for that today, but I do want to give you some background here. Luther spent much of his life before nailing the 95 Theses um, on a hunt to find communion and closeness with God. He tried different options that the Roman Catholic Church had for living a life of faith and piety before God. These included fasting, self-flagellation, pilgrimages to holy sites, visiting relics, completing different acts of penance. He would do confessing of his sins daily, sometimes for like six hours, Um, and he did a lot of searching of the scriptures. Luther was terrified that when he died, he would be found wanting in God's eyes and condemned. In his study of the scriptures, he began seeing differences between salvation in the Bible and the teachings of salvation from the church, specifically the selling of indulgences, which is paying money to lessen a person's time in purgatory. Um, At that time, the Pope was in favor of selling indulgences in order to raise money to build St. Peter's Basilica. Johannes Tietzel He was a Dominican friar. He was actually sent to Germany to sell indulgences at the Pope's request. 
Um, and this is when it, you know, that issue came right into Luther's backyard and he decided to nail these 95 theses and protested this practice among others in the church. These theses directly challenged and contradicted the Roman Catholic Church's teachings on various doctrines and practices, such as indulgences, like Bethany said, um, which is paying to get yourself or a family member expedited through purgatory. Um, He also protested the role of the priest as intermediary between lay people and God. So having to confess to a priest, for example, having to hear the scriptures spoken by a priest, etc., Um, He also uh, protested the absolute authority that the Roman Catholic Church exercised spiritually and many other issues as well. Luther posted these theses on the door of the church as a way of bringing them up for discussion within the community of the church, and he actually hoped to affect change from within the Roman Catholic Church rather than to separate from it. As we know, he and other reformers were not able to do this, and the Protestant church traces its beginnings to this act. Others also began to challenge the Roman Catholic Church's teachings on different things. Uh, John Calvin in France and Huldrych Zwingli in Switzerland challenged the Roman Catholic Church's teachings on Holy Communion practices. If you listen to our Roman Catholic episode, um, or you can also listen to a more recent episode we did on the sacraments, Um, you'll know that the Roman Catholic Church teaches uh, transubstantiation, which is that the body and the bread and the wine become the literal body and blood of Christ as they're being consumed. Um, And they challenge other elements as well. Um, The Anabaptists said that believing adults rather than children and infants should be baptized. The Roman Catholic Church practiced infant baptism um, as a way of cleansing babies from their original sin. And the Anabaptists had a problem with that. And, Um, In addition to all this, in general, reformers believed that a person's relationship with God should be independent of the church. So this meant that people should be able to read the Bible on their own, pray to God on their own, worship God without the direct involvement or mediation of the church. They weren't, they didn't have a problem with like being part of a church body or family, but they took issue with the fact that some of these spiritual practices had to happen within the context of the church. Like you would have to go to church and confess to a priest in order to repent before God. You would have to physically be in the presence of a priest. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. In 1534, King Henry VIII of England wanted to annul his marriage because he was in love with his mistress and his mistress was pregnant and he didn't have a male heir yet. Um, But the Roman Catholic Church would not allow him to because not only did the Roman Catholic Church not practice divorce, King Henry didn't actually have the grounds for an annulment that he was requesting. Um, Because of this, King Henry started his own church, basically because he wanted to marry his mistress. Um, The Church of England, which is now called the Anglican Church or the Episcopal Church in the USA, this church became the official state church of England and was pretty much the same as the Roman Catholic Church, but with some tweaks. In 1553 to 1558, the reign of his daughter, Queen Mary, in England, um, she reinstated the Roman Catholic Church as the official church in England, and she did a lot of persecuting, exiling, and killing of Protestants within um, England's borders. This was a very short, bloody time, the five years that she was reigning. She was called Bloody Mary, was she? She was called... Now, okay, technically, people call her Bloody Mary because she killed a lot of people, but her father killed a lot more people, but we don't notice it because his reign was a lot lot longer. So she killed a lot of people for the time, for the five years that she was reigning. Yeah. 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 Um, 
her sister, Queen Elizabeth I, reigned from 1558 to 1603. Um, So Queen Elizabeth I, she attempted to restore to the Protestant church in England, which would be the Church of England, as the official church of the British Empire, but she was criticized um, for not doing enough to bring them back to Protestantism. She was trying to walk a very fine line between her father, her sister, and the way that the people wanted to practice. The citizens who were critical of Queen Elizabeth I were labeled as Puritans because they wanted to preserve the purity of the church by going back to the basics described in the Bible with no other extras by others. But there were really two groups. There were the separatists and the non-separatists. Okay, so between the two years, um, between 1607 and 1609, which was a very short time span, many people... Um, who were separatists, so these were Puritans who wanted to actually separate from the Church of England, Um, they actually moved to the Netherlands, specifically to the province of Holland, to try and start a new life. But then many moved back to England within this two-year time span due to poverty and also unwanted Dutch influence on their children. In 1620, about 10 years later, many separatists tried to start a new life again, this time in the newly discovered America. So those who boarded the Mayflower, which everybody knows, um, landed in Massachusetts, later became known as the Pilgrims. Ten years later, in 1630, the other group, the non-separatists, wanted to stay in England and reform the church from where they were rather than start a new church on their own. They also became known as the Puritans. Although they did not feel the need to separate from the Church of England, many still sailed to America, landing in Boston, Massachusetts. This group did not sever ties with the Church of England. Um, This was the difference between them and the Pilgrims. So the Puritans kept their ties with the Church of England even while they were in America. The Pilgrims severed ties with the Church of England and tried to start their own deal. Um, so the non-separatists who landed in Massachusetts, their theology ended up being mostly Calvinist in its more detailed elements. So both the separatists and the non-separatists believed that religious freedom was extremely important. And this school of thought was instrumental, of course, in developing laws that protected religious freedom in future decades and centuries in America. And if this is really confusing to you, why the Lutheran church is different from the church of England is different from the Roman Catholic church is maybe perhaps different from the reformed church. You should go listen to our series on denominations that starts with episode 32, I think. Um, cause we talk a lot about how those are different and similar and it's interesting and confusing. So if you're confused, go listen to those. So the history of the five soles and how they're used, um, within the church As many Europeans became more and more convinced that the Roman Catholic Church had gotten off track and become corrupt in its power and various spiritual roles and of authority, more became convinced that the answer was to strip down Christianity to its basics and get rid of all the extra, quote, traditions of man that the Roman Catholic Church had added over time. The five solas became a clear, concise way to express the differences between the Roman Catholic Church and the Protestant Reform Movement focusing primarily on the doctrine of salvation, since that was pretty much the most important thing to them at that time, and they felt that the church had too much influence on that. Today, it's mostly Reformed denominations and movements that talk about the five solas most commonly, and that's because the five statements are so integral to their Reformation history. But pretty much all Protestant denominations affirm these five points, even if they don't teach them quite as explicitly. 
Now, what do the five solas mean? We're going to go into a bit of depth here. We're going to start with sola scriptura. The idea of sola scriptura states that the Bible alone is the final authority for the Christian and by extension for the church. The Bible is the inerrant, divinely inspired word of God, and the canon of scripture is closed, meaning that no books can be added or removed from the 66 that are there. Although the Roman Catholic Church affirmed the fact that the Bible is both without error and is divinely inspired, she took the position that the church alone could interpret the scripture for the people, effectively making the church the final authority rather than the scripture. This is why William Tyndale, after translating the New Testament into English from Latin, was executed for heresy. He made it possible for the average person to read and study the scripture instead of just hearing it through the priests who knew Latin. The Roman Catholic Church also held and still hold to the magisterial authority, meaning the interpretations of scripture, by the leaders in the Roman Catholic Church as being divinely inspired and given as though by God, as well as holding tradition as an authority in the Roman Catholic Church, meaning that God inspired the traditions of the church and they are endowed with authority in and of themselves because they're church history. Yeah, the Roman Catholic Church has a lot of authority. Like in lots of different ways. Yes. And if you want to hear more on that, go check out our different, we've done different episodes talking about Catholicism. Check those out. There's lots there. (laughs) That's interesting. Yes. And we're speaking about the Roman Catholic church and it's doctrine specifically, not about Catholics because Catholics can believe different things from each other and different things from the official Roman Catholic church stance. Yes, we are not hating on people who belong to the Roman Catholic Church. No. Some support verses for Sola Scriptura come from the New Testament. The first one is 2 Peter chapter 1, verse 21. It says, For no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. Um, so this is just talking about how the Bible was divinely inspired by God and was not written just by mere men. 2 Timothy chapter 3, verses 16 to 17 affirms this as well. It says, All scripture is breathed out by God and is profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. Sola Scriptura was practiced by rejecting any teachings of the Roman Catholic Church that were not in line with what scripture taught. While sola scriptura does mean that that scripture is sufficient, it does not mean that other creeds and teachings have no place in the church today. Rather, it means that scripture is the final authority. So, for example, the Apostles' Creed, which we discussed in episode 104 back in May, is helpful for outlining core doctrines of Christianity, and it's acceptable because it affirms what scripture already teaches. The next sola we're going to discuss is sola fide. The idea of sola fide says that we are saved by faith alone. Many say that this is the primary point of disagreement between the Roman Catholic Church and the Protestant Reformation movement. This doctrine flew in the face of the Roman Catholic belief that while faith was required for salvation, it wasn't the only requirement. Baptism, which cleansed someone from original sin, and good works were also necessary. Today, the Roman Catholic Church still believes that faith and good works are required for salvation, even though many Roman Catholics would not state it that clearly or even fully acknowledge that. Um, Mike Winger on YouTube has some really great in-depth teaching on the Roman Catholic doctrines, and 
he does a deep dive into their whole belief and doctrine around faith and works. The Roman Catholic Church believed that God's grace enabled the believer to do good works, providing, along with faith, salvation to the individual. The Protestants disagreed with this, stating instead that rather than being saved through grace and faith-equipped works, the believer is saved because they put their faith in Jesus, who takes on our sins and imputes to us his righteousness, justifying us before God. Essentially, the Roman Catholic Church said that faith is only a component of salvation, while the Reformers maintained that it is the only factor of salvation. Either you place saving faith or trust in Jesus' sacrifice and resurrection, or you don't. Some verses here, Matthew chapter 5, verse 48 says, You therefore must be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. The standard is perfect righteousness. That, that is what God is calling us to. And because Jesus is the one who did that on our behalf, when we, by faith, accept this sacrifice, that is what is so. Like, his righteousness is given to us. Hebrews chapter 4, verse 15 says, For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet was without sin. Jesus is the only one who lived a sinless life. He's the only one who could possibly make the sacrifice and atone for our sin. And because of that, he could do it completely. There's no need for anything but faith. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 21 says that for our sake he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Jesus took on our sin and became our righteousness. We don't have to do good works or penance or anything else. Jesus took care of all of that. And finally, Romans chapter 3, verse 27. Where then is boasting? It is excluded. By what kind of law? By one of works? No, on the contrary, by a law of faith. So it is not works, but faith. Otherwise, we could work for our salvation and boast of what we have done because we have added to it. Next up, we have sola gratia. So this, the idea of sola gratia is that we are saved by grace alone. Grace refers to God's unmerited favor given to us, seen most clearly in the sacrifice of Jesus. God's favor is shown by his mercy, not punishing us, as we rightly deserve, as well as providing for our salvation. At the time of the Reformation, the Roman Catholic Church had ways people could earn or merit grace through things such as penance, Bible reading, acts of service, sacraments, etc. These bits of grace were given out sort of piecemeal. This emphasizes that there is nothing we can do to earn, pay for, or merit salvation, Sola Gratia says that it is simply God's gift to us. The Bible is full of stories of God's grace towards people who did nothing to deserve his favor or help. This grace is God's loving kindness to us, and he is pleased to do this. Ephesians chapter 2, verses 8 to 9 says, For it is by grace that you have been saved through faith, and this not from yourselves. It is a gift of God, not by works, so that no one can boast. So this verse makes it very clear that we are saved by the grace of God and not works of our own. Works has no factor in our salvation. Romans 4 verse 16 says, This is why the promise is by faith, so that it may be according to grace to guarantee it 
to all the descendants, not only those who are of the law, but also those who are of Abraham's faith. So this verse uh, shows us that the people who lived before Jesus' death on the cross were also saved by grace through faith. Again, not because they were making the right sacrifices or anything like that, but because they were saved by grace through the faith that they put in God. Next up is Solus Christus. This is the, the idea of Solus Christus is that salvation is through Christ alone. Now, the Roman Catholic Church didn't deny Jesus' sacrifice was necessary for salvation. Instead, they would add or take away parts of it. It was kind of like a copay situation where Christ's sacrifice did a part and people had to cooperate and do their part, meaning works, indulgences, penance, sacraments, etc., The reformers wanted to strip the extras off and prize Christ above all other methods of gaining or earning or adding to salvation. Acts chapter 4 verses 11 through 12 say this, This Jesus is the stone rejected by you builders, which has become the cornerstone. There is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given to people, and we must be saved by it. Jesus is the only one who saves us. No other person on earth can do that. This is refuting a Catholic teaching um, where they had a practice of appealing to the merits and good works of others, meaning the saints, etc., to aid in a person's own salvation. And this was again the call. And again, the call against this was that Christ alone did the work for our salvation, and we claim him and no other. 1 Timothy chapter 2, verses 5 through 6 say this, For there is one God and one mediator between God and humanity, Christ Jesus, himself human, who gave himself a ransom for all, a testimony at the proper time. This verse gives a grounding for Jesus alone being our mediator with God the Father and refutes the Catholic practice of asking for the intercession of the saints or having a priest be the intercessor between you and God. We also have a quote here from Martin Luther about preaching Christ above all else. He says, quote, The devil does not intend to allow this testimony about Christ. He devotes all his energy to opposing it and will not desist until he has struck it down and suppressed it. In this respect, we humans are weak and stubbornly perverse and are more likely to become attached to saints than to Christ. Within the papacy, they have preached about the service rendered by these beloved saints that one ought to rely on their own, on their merit rather than Christ's. End quote. Christ is the central point, not only for salvation, but also for the whole of the Bible and salvation history. Basically, the Roman Catholic Church at that time put a lot of emphasis on saints, um, Mother Mary, other people who had done good, who have done good works, and Luther felt that took attention off of Jesus and his sacrifice and our personal relationship with him and wanted to strip that away and put Christ solely in the seat of glory. The very last one we have here is soli deo gloria. So this last one is rather simple. It means all salvation is for the glory of God alone. God in the Trinity is complete and lacking nothing. 
There is nothing that we could give to God that he does not already own, nothing that we could do so that God owed you something. Soli Deo Gloria is emphasized in Reformed theology and is tied to God's sovereignty, meaning that God does every single part of our salvation, including making people accept Christ, and he does it all so that he will get the glory for it. And if you are Calvinist, you fully affirm all of this. This is actually the um, this is actually the I in Tulip, the doctrine of irresistible grace, which states that once God makes somebody alive to himself in Christ, um, that person like will choose him for sure, guaranteed, because God's grace is irresistible. Everything that God does is to bring himself glory, which is his due. And to the glory of God alone is one of the solas, because in Reformed theology, God does every single piece of the work to bring people to salvation. Revelation chapter 4, verses 9 to 11 say this. Whenever the living creatures give glory, honor, and thanks to the one who is seated on the throne, the one who lives forever and ever, the 24 elders fall down before the one seated on the throne, worship the one who lives forever and ever, cast their crowns before the throne, and say, Our Lord and God, you are worthy to receive glory and honor and power because you have created all things, and because of your will they exist and were created. So this verse just shows how God receives glory and honor in heaven as is his due. And he has angels or heavenly creatures. Some believe these are animals um, specifically for this purpose. And a little fun fact for you. The composer uh, Bach would write SDG at the bottom of his church music and some of his secular work as well to signify that he had made it to worship God, that the music was for God's glory alone. Other artists such as Handel, um, who wrote Handel's Messiah, as well as the modern musician Aaron Schust have also used this acronym in their work as well. It's also the moniker or um, like standard for different groups in Christendom. So while the five solas were formed for the purpose of clarifying the doctrine of salvation during and after the Reformation, I found researching them to be edifying and encouraging to me even though I've been a Christian for many years. So while they apply to salvation and I've been saved for a very long time, it just, it was really, really good to hear some of these things. Being reminded of foundational truths of Christ's work on our behalf was so, so good to hear. And I don't know, we like in the Protestant, but not particularly reformed um, people that I'm around, it was good to be reminded of these things and interesting. So with that, we are going to wrap up this episode on the five solas. We have some recommended resources. We'll link those in our show notes, um, and we will talk to you next time. Bye. Thanks for tuning into the Thrive Theology Podcast. If you enjoyed this episode, don't forget to leave us a rating or review. For show notes, resources, blog posts, and a complete archive of episodes, visit us at thrivetheology.com. And you can follow us on Instagram at Thrive Theology. We'll chat with you next time.